one rolls around, you will only have a few short years left of even paying um, on uh, the debt service for the bonds. We pretty much have already almost all paid them off. So the challenge for us is not to actually, and the, and the tragedy is not to be actually able to use that money. The uh, bill itself that uh, we drafted would actually take those bonds and allow us to use it for, and only for, affordable housing creation. Um, and there's some, uh, a, a very small amount, up to 250,000 a year, that could, with council direction, be used for homeless-related services. But the majority of the bill um, would be for housing creation. Um, we're one of two former redevelopment agencies statewide that are interested in doing this. Um, the, the city of Glendale modeled the bill after ours, and they're currently going through the assembly. So we've gone through six um, hearings and testified at in, in Sacramento. Um, it's passed through every committee. It's now in the suspense file and appropriations on the Senate side. So we've already made it all the way through the assembly, <coughs> made it all the way through the Senate, and now we're waiting for the next two weeks for that discussion and vote on the floor. If it goes through um, the appropriations committee, which we believe that it will, it will go to the governor's desk, and that's really where we're going to need some support. And so I wanted to give you an update of where we are um, because we're in a bit of a holding pattern um, to, for it to come out of appropriations, but then we're going to need to garner a lot of support in the community um, to actually, I think, get this signed into law. And the reason why I believe that specifically, um, you know, our Governor Newsom has come out, and many of you probably follow that, about support for affordable housing statewide, but this is a bill that's helping one city. And so, you know, there, I think, are some larger measures and bills, that many of you are probably following some of them, that are specifically around affordable housing, but for our city our size to have 16 million in funding that can only be spent on affordable housing, we won't get anywhere near that amount through all of the bills and all the things that the state measures. So to be able to take money that we currently have in hand and be able to apply that to projects here will be huge for us. So um, that 16 million can be turned into approximately around 250 units of affordable housing um, leveraged through three projects. and so. Um, through past discussions, and the re reason why it's relevant to the library project is if this funding comes forward, it's actually funding we could use um, to potentially combine with a library um, of, some, of some form. Not necessarily if we do a rehab, obviously, but if there is a new construction down the road, um, whether it's on this existing site or another one, we would have a funding source to be able to contribute to an affordable housing portion. So I just wanted to give you an update on that. Um, we didn't have an opportunity to talk about it last time. Uh, the Department of Finance um, at the state level has come out with an opposition letter. Um, we just received it last week, and so we wanted you to know that as well. And that's where we're a little concerned about what the governor is going to do with this, even though he's supportive of affordable housing creation, um, how we may respond. There uh, have two main points. Um, one is just that they feel it might be precedent setting statewide. Uh, to support the city of Santa Cruz. And as I mentioned before, uh, most other cities aren't in our position. They don't, haven't gone through and have a finding of completion, have a final agreed upon budget approved by Department of Finance. We actually do have that. Um, and then in polling of many of the other cities with outstanding bond proceeds, uh, the majority of them aren't interested in taking their capital funds and switching the focus for affordable housing creation. So as I said, we've only found one other city at this point who's interested in doing that. So it will not be precedent setting. Um, so that's the main objection um, from them. The other one is that we, 
they feel seven years now that we still shouldn't have issued the bonds in the first place. Of course, we did that legally before redevelopment agencies were terminated to do the projects that council had directed us to do. So it's somewhat of a, of a non-point, but I wanted you to have that background. And I, I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. Um, so just sort of switching gears, thank you, Bonnie, <coughs> over into the parking discussion. Want to make a couple of introductions. Um, I'd like to introduce Claire Fleisler, who is our transportation planner for the city. Um, part of the reason we decided to broach the topic of parking today is there was quite a few questions that came up um, during our financing meeting and our parking team wasn't able to be there. So we have Claire and Mark Dettel, Director of Public Works here to answer questions about assumptions in the downtown around parking, the parking district, the parking model, both the financial and um, parking needs uh, model downtown. You also requested that we bring someone from the Downtown Commission, so um, Deirdre Hamilton, who is the chair of the Downtown Commission, has very generously agreed to be with us tonight um, to answer questions about process, um, the Downtown Commission's recommendation to the, uh, to the council, so she's here as a resource for you as well. And um, with that, I will hand it over to Claire, and as I mentioned, community members, if uh, there are some questions that you'd like to ask, you're welcome to write them down on the note cards and submit them to me. And, Pending time availability, we'll, we'll get those addressed. All right, we'll hand it over. Well, good evening. As Amanda said, I'm Claire Fleece, I'm your transportation planner, and almost everything I'm presenting to you tonight is something that most of you have seen before, but now is in one package. It came to you in multiple decision making points throughout uh, late 2017, throughout 2018, and early 2019. So now in one package, and we'll go through just an overview. A refresher of downtown what makes our downtown parking district different and why we even have the ability to have this conversation right now um, a review of the parking model related to supply and demand a review of our parking rate strategy and how that impacts our ongoing uh, parking finances of the parking district and looking forward and then how parking relates to the broader discussion that you've been having related to the library mixed use project um, as Amanda said I'm really happy to have chair Hamilton here one of the reasons that she's a great person to participate in this is that throughout her um, term on the downtown commission she participated in all of these discussions and then even after we reached the end of the parking rate strategy has participated in our um, ad hoc subcommittee related to updates to our downtown parking resolution which you guys voted on this year so she's had um, a lot of experience and a lot of work doing a deep dive into parking in this past year and a half or so yeah you're all glowing to me That's <laughs> Um, so our downtown parking district, here are the boundaries if you are not familiar, they're semi-irregular but generally bounded by Laurel Street, Mission and Water with an annex to the north um, by the river and then roughly by Center Street with a little on either side. Um, the parking district was founded in 1956, it's been around for a long time and one of the reasons it was created was for the ability for the city to produce parking supply projects. It's an enterprise fund, which means it is self-supporting. It is not general funds supported in that way. User fees are the primary thing that goes into it. We'll hit budget in just a minute. The Downtown Commission is the advisory body to the City Council on all things that happen within the parking district. So Public Works manages the district, Downtown Commission advises, and Council decides. It's kind of the framework of how that happens. Um, Within the downtown, we do have reduced parking requirements. So outside of the downtown, every single land use is required to provide their own parking. If you have a bakery, you provide your parking lot. If you have a, a dry cleaner, you provide your parking lot. If you have a grocery store, you provide your parking lot. In the downtown, we have reduced parking requirements because of our shared parking system. 
and we'll get into that more, but it is a concentrated supply and it's based upon having a concentrated mix of uses that have different hours, different purposes, different customers. Um, additionally, in the downtown, all of our public parking is city supplied. This is different than elsewhere in the entire city where each business or each residence provides their own parking. Within the district, the city is the owner and the operator of the parking. So downtown parking is different than everywhere else in the city and our parking requirements are 30 to 70% lower within the district than they are elsewhere. Getting into big picture parking district um, budget revenue and expenses, this is a slide from your uh, FY20 budget presentation, giving you some info. Um, this is one of the things that Amanda had identified you were interested in discussing. So just high level, on the left is the revenues, on the right is the expenditures. The deficiency fee is something that we've talked about a lot over the last couple years, and it's one of the elements that your council uh, elected non-parking rate strategy to sunset over a five-year period. Um, I called it out in uh, FY20, it represents $844,000 of the budget, it's about 15%. Uh, if Jim Burr was here, our transportation manager, he could tell you when he took over, the deficiency fee represented about a third of the overall budget, and as we've brought more paid parking lots online, that's become a smaller and smaller piece, and because of that, that's why we have the ability to sunset it over the next five years. And I will say this is included in the agenda packet, so if you're having a hard time reading it or want to review it when you get home, mm -hmm. um, you'll have that mm -hmm. as well. And I'll send this, Amanda has it as well. Can I just yeah. ask you maybe yes. that term deficiency fee, could you just give Absolutely. definition just so the public kind of understands what that Yeah, is. and I'll put in, I, I talk about this stuff all the time, so if there's something that I gloss over that you don't understand you want me to go into more, please let me know and anytime question. So what the deficiency fee is, is if a business does not provide their parking on site, they are deficient that number of spaces and we assess a fee per space. Generally, in the downtown, the parking ratios are one parking space required per 400 square feet of land use for non-residential uses. And if you walk down Pacific Avenue, you can see we don't have a lot of parking lots there. Those businesses don't provide their own parking. They're assessed, say you have a 4,000 square foot business at one to 400, that number of spaces they're required, we charge them a fee per space that they're assessed on a quarterly basis and they use the publicly provided parking supply. So like Marini's would use the parking garages that the city owns and operates. Trader Joe's has their own parking area. Exactly. So Trader Joe's is an example of a place that's not paying into the deficiency. Exactly, okay. yes. Okay. Um, so you look at how many businesses we have that don't have their parking, their own parking, mm -hmm. which is something we want in a downtown environment because it lends itself to a walkable, um, good street frontage, interesting environment to look at that's not constantly broken up by parking lot after parking lot after parking lot that has two spaces, three spaces, five spaces. But because of that, the city is the provider of that parking. So not only do we actually supply it, but we also manage it. So we do all of the maintenance, all of the upkeep, and we provide all of the other elements that go along with it, which you can um, see in here are personnel services, um, that includes managing the bathrooms, managing a sidewalk scrubber, managing, um, we pay part of a downtown ranger. We, we do other things that keep the downtown in a state of good repair that have a direct nexus to our parking. Thanks, thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So just kind of looking at these numbers in terms of the revenue versus expenditures, mm -hmm. based on these, would you then say, since we have you know about 5.7 million in revenue and 6.1, million in expenditures, are we actually in a deficit right now in terms of... That, that's a good question. That relates to our fund balance. So in the last, 
couple years, last two to three years, we've taken on some major capital projects, which we had waited on, waited on, waited on. So we'd be an accruing fund balance knowing that we had these big projects coming up. So um, we have about $3.2 million in our fund balance right now, knowing that we also have some major, some continuing major capital expenses coming up. Um, Mark can probably speak more to those if you have specific questions, but I know we have an elevator coming up. Um, we've just done some deck restorations and we have some other things that are coming. Um, so it's anticipated expenses coming up. So, you know, we save and then we spend similar to probably how you budget for your own life. You save knowing something's coming, you spend, you save, you spend. Um, so we don't always directly match up, but we, we are self-supported. And your capital projects will go over, it may go over two fiscal years, so you won't spend the entire capital budget that one year, but you need to have that money so that you can obligate the contract. And I will say, as uh, there, we also put the fund balance in your, your meeting packet, and one of the things that Jim had uh, mentioned is kind of year over year, you can see there are some years where Claire said you're overspending or you're underspending and you're kind of working with that fund balance. But he said generally across multiple years, we, we're pretty much running at cost. Would you? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we do a pretty job projecting out what we're going to need. So um, just to follow up on that, um, how, so the proposal that we, you know, that came to the council included and I know we're not necessarily talking about that now, but we have been talking about a 600 space parking garage with a almost $3 million in debt service. So how does that, I mean, what, so what would that do to shift that dynamic? I mean, that's a lot of. Yeah, if you can hold that question for like 15 slides, sure. um, and there's a, uh, this that's in front of you, we're gonna go into that. Okay. Yes, um, so we'll get there. I'm trying to, I'll lay the groundwork, we'll talk about supply and demand and why we got to the point of making that recommendation, um, and then we'll talk about what went into that recommendation and how we put together a sustainable financing structure. So is it, yeah. just one last question before yes. we move on. So is it, would it be correct to say that based on the parking strategy that the council adopted, or you know, the work that's been done over the last three years, that parking deficit fee line item is slowly going to be spent down and disappear? Okay. Within mm -hmm. five years, that will become that will zero. Be because we're basically yes. collecting yeah. throughout the and yeah, we'll get into the right strategy, but as that goes down, other things go up to offset that going to a fully, almost fully user fee supported system, which is the people who are using the parking, who are consuming that parking, are paying the cost of that parking. There's some minor elements in there, such as rents and stuff, but by and large, it's, it's user fee supported is the model that we're moving the other towards. Thing I would, the other thing I would add is, as any operating um, program, you have to have a reserve fund balance for unanticipated <coughs> things. These are all budgeted items. We had a uh, our parking equipment operator went out of business, so that means we had to switch over all our parking equipment, which is about a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar expenditure that wasn't planned on. So that happens occasionally, and so we have to have a reserve that we can tap into. We're doing it over time, but still, there's unanticipated projects that will. Mm -hmm. Thank you. No problem. Um, so again, how it works, revenue that goes into the parking fund versus into the general fund. Citation revenue does not come to the parking fund. Something to remember, goes to the general fund. Um, but the, the meters, the lots, the structures, the pay machines, park mobile, um, permit sales, rents from some of the small spaces that we do rent out in our garage, and deficiency fees, 
come into the parking fund. Citation revenue does not. Um, shared parking, again, uh, something I touched on, but our model is based heavily on really the gold standard in parking management, which is shared parking. Not every single use provides 100% of the parking that's needed, and that's because we really do have a 23-hour downtown. We have coffee shops opening at 5 a.m. and bars closing at 2 a.m., and the coffee shop's not still open at 2 a.m., and the bar is not open at 5 a.m. So the um, kind of cutesy little thing I use to help you remember that is pancakes, pottery, pints, and pillows. You can have one parking space that someone comes downtown and they have breakfast in the morning and then they leave. And then someone comes downtown and they go paint some pottery at Petroglyph and then they leave. And then someone comes downtown and uses that same parking spot to go to happy hour and get a pint with a friend and then they leave. And then someone that lives downtown comes down and they park in that same parking spot to stay the night in their home and then they leave. That parking spot, which would have been four parking spaces outside of the downtown district, was utilized to a much more efficient level because of our shared parking model. So we supply much less parking in downtown than we would elsewhere, and it's used much more efficiently. Multiple business hours, trip purposes, mix of uses, all of those things, and also many people who are parking once and going to many different businesses as well. So supply, how much parking do we have? There's not going to be a test on this, but really just shy of 3,000 spaces. Um, a mix of off-street, which we refer to as our garages and our parking lots, our surface lots, and on-street, which are our meters and our time-limited spaces that we have within the district. And we'll get into the parking model review. And when we refer to the parking model, this is what we're talking about in terms of supply and demand and how we make forward projections to see and make an educated recommendation to you as decision makers on what are our future needs of the parking district going to be. Um, our job as planners is not to plan for the needs of today. It's to look forward and see what's coming in the pipeline and what are the things that you should be aware of so that you can make a good decision based on what the future needs are. So we know there will be a loss of parking supply over time. Uh, the blue on here are our parking structures. You can see that they are all in the north half of the district. Um, and the yellow are our surface lots that we have. Lot 2, which is uh, behind the building that's going up next to Lulu Carpenters, that uh, previously we had been able to use from, it was not owned by us, but it was leased to us for a very affordable rate. Um, that came offline as part of that construction project. Um, the Calvary Church lot, oh, and a caveat to these numbers, these are the same slides which were used during our decision-making process, both at the Downtown Commission and Council. I intentionally didn't update any of the numbers or years or change any of the data because I wanted you to, again, see what went into the decision-making process to date. Some of these things we know are um, slid forward, like Calvary Church, one of the ones we're talking about. Initially, uh, we had anticipated that would come offline in 2019 because that is the end of our lease with them. Uh, we are now moving forward on a year-to-year -year basis. So although the year has changed, we do still anticipate that coming offline. So it might just move out a little bit, but we are still anticipating that. So uh, the Red Church lot, uh, anticipate that coming offline. We've had a lease with them for, for quite a while. And then lot 23, which is behind Taco Bell at the corner of Laurel and Front, that was uh, sold to be part of a mixed-use development there. So those are both coming offline. Uh, lot 22, again, that was owned by the NIAC and now has been incorporated into a, a private development project on uh, Front Street there. And then Lot 12, which is adjacent to the Metro, 
and City Council had made a decision in the past that this will be uh, incorporated as part of the future affordable housing project development at that site, both coming offline. Um, and finally, Lot 27, this one is the most wishy-washy of ones that we could anticipate, but this is at the corner, this is where the potty is, at the corner of Laurel and Front there. Next and to the union. next to the credit union, we've had uh, a lease at this location as well. Um, we wouldn't anticipate having that lease in perpetuity. So this one's a maybe at 32 spaces, but it's one that we would anticipate in, in the pipeline years coming offline. So that comes out to 233 spaces we're anticipating going away by 2025. Um, it's about 10% of our off-street parking supply that we have in existence right now. It's a pretty significant change for a downtown our size. We also, as it relates to this project, Lot 4 has 135 parking spaces, um, and then there's the potential farmer's market lot, Lot 7. With um, the addition of Lot 4, if that were to be incorporated into a mixed-use project, adding those 135 spaces to the 233 spaces would be a, a net loss of 368 spaces. If you were to consider a 600 space parking structure as kind of the number that you're working with, what that really means is 232 net new parking spaces. So how I like to keep this really simple to remember, we're losing about 10% of our existing parking supply. With this project at that assumed 600 space, that would be about a net gain of 10%. When you yep. say this project, you're talking about the potential for a mixed-use project on yes. Lot 4. Correct. So you would lose 135, but by building a structure, you would gain a the net new of 232. Okay. Yes, yes. correct. Yes. Okay. So subject to change, but that was the number that we were working with for um, the assumptions that we put into the models we were looking at. So. That's the change in demand, and as we know, supply and demand are intrinsically linked. The, the change in demand is interesting as well. Um, the yellow on here is, again, where the existing parking supply is, and the purple, we can get into this in more detail, is what is included in our 10-year projected development pipeline. This is based upon um, applications that either have come in or that we have had a pre-application meeting or have had preliminary conversations that we have a, a pretty good idea these projects are going to be submitted and what the size of them are and what the impacts are going to be then on the parking district. Um, as you can see, the majority of the new demand is in the southern half of our parking district where we do lack any um, public supply of any significance. So when we talk about supply and demand and what is full, we do not use 100% capacity as being full. Um, one of the reasons is that having a cushion in capacity allows for uh, people to actually be certain that there will be a spot there and it minimizes circling. Uh, by the research, about 30% of the congestion that occurs in downtowns is people circling for parking. So minimizing the amount of circling and all the associated effects of that is something that this cushion of 90% for garages and 85% for on-street seeks to address in that way. Um, and now into the model and broadly what goes into model. And what I'm gonna show next is some screenshots of what it looks like rather than going through it. 
But what we put in are existing conditions of supply and demand. How many spaces do we currently have? What's our existing um, occupancy and demand rate? Uh, what's our existing pricing for and revenue, expenses, operations and maintenance costs? And then what do we see changing? Um, what in our 10-year pipeline, what's the anticipated development that we just went through the purple dots? Um, what are the anticipated changes in supply? What public supply do we know is coming offline? Um, so that's in the 10-year. And then the 20-year pipeline looking out, we recently adopted uh, updates to our downtown plan. So we looked at an 80% build-out of our downtown plan as the 20-year planning horizon there and what we would anticipate. Um, this caveat's really important. There is no such thing as a crystal ball. This, our assumptions in this model are based upon the best available data that we have, and that's subject to change. If we enter into a recession in 2020, that's subject to change. Um, if one of these private developments realizes that that's not the project they're gonna do, it's gonna be something different, that's subject to change. But what we put forward is the best data that we do have and is informed by, um, I think, a lot of really solid facts, yeah. So I just wanna be, so the downtown plan, this was the plan that was developed after the earthquake, and my understanding, kind of doing some research on that, is there's an intentional, there's an intent in our downtown plan that our downtown become both a place you can live as well as work. So we intentionally have designed and are pursuing mm -hmm. basically both residential and business mm -hmm. uh, cohabitation in our downtown so that we, we are doing what basically the state told us we should start doing five years ago. We've been doing that for a while. I Correct. Mean, if you're really following planning in terms of smart growth, we're incorporating those two uses and have been doing that since the rebuild, since the uh, earthquake. Yes, so the uh, downtown plan, the original downtown recovery plan was adopted in 1991 and it was a result of uh, post-earthquake planning. It's been updated a couple times since then, but the most significant update to date uh, was completed in 2016. 2016, uh, Ron Powers was the project manager on that before, um, before he retired. Um, yeah. <laughs> and a key component of that was increasing the height and FAR in the southern portion of downtown because as we looked at it, North Pacific and the northern portion of downtown really has recovered from the earthquake. Um, it saw a lot of investment. It's a lot different in North Pacific than it is in South Pacific. And the development rules there were a lot different also so that it it really didn't pencil out for many of these developments to occur to allow for increasing the number of housing units we have downtown um, and really maximizing some of the potential there. So the investment wasn't seen in the southern portion of downtown and that's what the downtown plan really sought to address. Um, and it gave us a more specific land use plan for downtown and projections of what could, what full build out could look like in downtown, which is what we use for the 20 year uh, downtown plan build out. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I mentioned some of the items had shifted out, so some of these numbers had changed, but still what we would reasonably expect to occur based on the best available info. So as I said, these next couple slides, they're just gonna be screenshots of what the model looks like. Um, you guys are all scientists, so you're all familiar with what goes into models, inputs, outputs. Um, so we, the first slide you're looking at right now is our pipeline assumptions. We put in what are the projects we're anticipating to see? How many units are they? How much commercial square footage? How much parking are they providing? When are they going to occur? Really this, in, in summary, is what are the changes that we can anticipate? 
Then it goes in um, to the existing supply and demand, future projections, and so this links what are our existing conditions with what are our projected changes. Um, I'm not expecting you guys to be able to actually read this or anything. If you do have more questions about it, let me know, but I think this would be a really boring presentation if I went through cell by cell <laughs> for you. Um, and then we go through um, existing conditions as it relates to pricing, including our hourly rates, our daily rates, our permit pricing, the quantity of each of them, the uh, average stay that we're seeing, so how many times each space turns over and what's the revenue we're getting and how is that gonna impact uh, the changes in revenue we see as we lose 10% of our existing supply and what's that gonna do to um, our parking system. Uh, then we go into the, the demand engine, really. So we put in the existing conditions and we put in the uh, changes that we're projecting to see and it pumps out what the surplus and deficit are gonna be based on all of those other factors relating to pricing and change. All comes together. We also look at our finances. So it includes our operations and maintenance expenses. It includes an escalator for healthcare costs. It includes um, increases in personnel and service costs. It includes it, as you know, everything's getting more expensive. And so that's something we have to budget in. And what it pumps out is a nice graph. Um, and this is the no new supply scenario, parking demand projection. Uh, the first, does this have a, yeah, ah, oh, it doesn't actually work. Um, I thought I had a laser pointer, I don't. Um, so this graph shows the dotted line is at the 10-year horizon and the end is at a 20-year planning horizon. To look to achieve a 90% occupancy over the 10 and 20-year planning horizons with no new supply, 10 years out we're projecting having a parking deficit of 657 spaces. And in the 20-year planning horizon, we would project to have a parking deficit of 1,210 spaces. Um, as I said earlier, our job in <coughs> Public Works is to manage the parking district and to take in the information and bring it to you for decision making. This is something to me that I would say, red flag, it's a time to have a conversation about the direction that the district is going. Similarly, oh. Would you so like me to go back? The ten, the ten year is twenty. I can't quite see twenty twenty six. There. So those are those circles. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, the the first circle is twenty twenty six. Twenty twenty six, and the second circle is twenty thirty six. Um, again, this could move out one year, two year, three years as as development timelines do change. But it is something that I would say we feel pretty solid on. The and this takes into account all land use, so it could be, it could be residential, it could be business, it could mm -hmm. be entertainment, it could be whatever whatever's coming into the downtown. Correct. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. We did the same exercise for a yes new supply. So as we said, we're we're modeling based around a 600 space um, parking structure, and. In, in this case, it was location specific because it also did assume that then lot four would be coming offline, so it'd be that net 232 spaces. Um, in the 10-year planning horizon, we're still anticipating having a parking deficit of almost 200 spaces, and then the 20-year of 745 spaces. The key takeaway that I want you to get from this is that with the addition of this project, we are still projecting a deficit. With the addition of this project, we are not projecting that all of a sudden we're gonna have a surplus, a bunch of extra parking, and that we're planning to overbuild parking. Um, with that said, 192 spaces as your TDM program manager as well, 
that's manageable. That's something that I feel like with aggressive transportation demand management, with the rollout of the expanded programs that we'll be rolling out in October and moving forward, um, and with a continued focus on that, 192, manageable. 657, way less manageable, way less, um, way less livable for many people and way less enticing for many of our local businesses. So in your model, you wouldn't you wouldn't put in a TDM factor, for example. So would you, I mean, does the model yeah. allow you to do that? Oh, this where is... you would say, okay, I'm going to assume fifteen or twenty percent of people who come mm -hmm. to work downtown mm -hmm. are going to start riding their bikes or taking the bus. This so is a great question. That way? Yes, uh, that's a post-processing model that we set up. So we we took this and we said, okay, based on these assumptions, how would we need to reduce our single occupant vehicle travel, and by what rate? to get to a balance. With the no new supply scenario, we would have to get down to one in four people driving downtown, about 25% of people. To compare that, right now we have 57.5% of people who drive downtown alone to access downtown. So we would need to drastically reduce that and how I ran that post-processing model was that it was not mode specific. I don't really care where those people switch, if they're walking, biking, taking the bus. I still want them to be coming downtown. Um, but uh, what percentage of people would drive to achieve a balance? Yes? What's been the current trend in terms of people um, choosing alternative modes of transportation from downtown? Do you have any accounts? Yeah, yeah, we did uh, recently two consecutive years of downtown employee uh, commute surveys, and by and large, biking is the most popular way um, for people who don't drive to get downtown. We have, um, you guys hear me say this all the time, we have the second highest rate of bicycle riding in the United States of America. Not in California, you know, not in our county, in the United States of America. Um, in downtown, that holds true as well, and additionally, about 68% of our survey respondents said that biking was the thing that they would most be interested in trying were they to try not driving. Um, so it's one of the, the key things that we focus on in our outreach and our encouragement activities. Um, that said, getting to a 25% drive alone rate is a big city that has a subway, that has an incredible amount of density, that has an incredible amount of diversity of housing options, um, and has a lot of characteristics <coughs> that we do not have here. Uh, transit being a key component that supports that and a robust walk-up dependable transit network. So um, Councilmember Myers, to your, your question, getting, uh, we did run that and we ran it on top as a post-processing model and it is a, it would be a dramatic, dramatic, dramatic shift to achieve balance. Yes? Has there been any conversation, given the um, results of the analyses you've conducted, have there been conversations started with like Metro around the need for increased uh, public transit and the potential for that? I love this question. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so you, you may know or you may not know, I worked at Metro for about five years before joining the City of Santa Cruz in service planning. And uh, the, the big question in transit service is frequency versus coverage. And how do you balance those two competing needs of high quality, high frequency transit service along our main transportation corridors with lifeline service, coverage based service that goes to Lompico and Ben Lomond and Coralitas and other places that people depend on public transit service to be able to access 
school, doctor's appointments, work, etc. Um, the city did a couple years ago when Metro was going through their comprehensive operational analysis, COA, um, and looking at how they could fundamentally restructure their service as a result of their budget um, challenges. I forget the word they use for it, but budget challenges. The city did take a position in support of high quality, high frequency transit service along our main transportation corridors, which is supported by the policies included in our general plan um, and our, our land use plan as part of that as well. Um, we do continually talk to Metro. I think I talked to them three times today alone um, about how transit service looks and where we want to encourage it. We, uh, as you know, are rolling out an EcoPass for downtown employees October 1st. The 4,000 cards are here. They're getting printed right now. Um, so one of the things that we will monitor is what is the uptick in use as a result of that? How can we make transit more attractive? What are the things that are limiting? And from that downtown employee commute survey that I mentioned, one of the things that we know is that people say they don't take transit because it is inconvenient, takes too long, and doesn't run when they need it. Um, so our, our downtown workforce also, um, sorry, I'm full of all these facts that I'm pulling together for you. Um, about 50% of our downtown workforce works in retail or restaurant. Um, we know that those are often irregular hours, shift work, and that type of schedule is incredibly difficult to build behavioral patterns around transit. Um, if you have a regular nine to five and every single morning you can take that 805 Route 71 and every single evening you're taking the 525 Route 71, you can build a pattern around that. But if you work on Sunday and transit runs only half as frequently, and then you run, uh, you work late into the evening on a Wednesday and transit stops running at 8 p.m., it makes it much more challenging. So our downtown workforce mixed with the transit that we have makes kind of a, a challenging combination there, but it is something we continue to work on advocating for enhanced frequency of service and uh, duration starting earlier in the morning and later at night to reflect our actual workforce. It's a long answer to a direct question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so moving forward, that was, the su supply and demand so this is what we're looking at and what I would say is we have a problem that we need to discuss and that that supply and demand is I think what that shows and so then what we brought to you next is okay what's the solution to this problem and that um, the solution that we brought is a combination of expanded TDM and expanded parking supply to address our growing and our changing downtown and the need that we're projecting on our parking supply. And so how do you do that? We bring you a parking rate strategy, which really what this is, is um, this is a complicated way to go through the simple way that I'm gonna explain it. And the components of it are, how do you pay for all of the costs that we're already anticipating? So again, everything is getting more expensive. Doing what we already do is getting more expensive and expanding TDM to meet people where they are and give people transportation options, and build a new supply project, and utilize best practices and parking policy related to users who are consuming the parking, paying for the cost of that parking, and not being subsidized by uh, downtown businesses, and being able to make a real financial choice in how you're getting around. So those were kind of the, the big universe of things that we're looking at. How it went into the rate strategy is deficiency fees, permits, hourly costs at our meters, structures, and lots, transportation demand management, bonding assumptions for what it would look like to produce a new project, and our operations and maintenance costs and how they would change. 
This slide looks different than the one you saw because again, this is the uh, information that was presented at the time we were making decisions. So this is the prior year's budget numbers here. The parking deficiency fees at the time we were having this conversation, uh, I believe these are FY19 numbers, um, made up 16.7% of, of the pie. And yeah, FY numbers, I have a note here, are what we use for analysis. So looking at that, what we proposed was a five-year sunset of the deficiency fee. Um, as I explained, this is what businesses pay into the parking district, and really what it amounts to is um, a subsidy to users because it offsets the cost of what users pay for parking because it funds 17% of the district. Um, so looking at that, wanting to sunset that over time, not all at once, but take a slow and steady approach um, at the same time that we increase other costs this started on January 1st of 2019, and by 2023 will be fully sunsetted. Uh, the spaces were $425 per space per year. They're now 340. They'll go down to 255, 170, 85, and then in 2023 will be fully eliminated. So that's the cost to the business per space. Per space. Yeah. So um, you know, if you have 10 spaces, then it's 340 times 10. Yes. So. That eight hundred ninety thousand. Wait, so the the value the that matches up to that. The sixteen point seven percent is the eight ninety. Right. Yes. So, that's, so each year we're gonna lose because we're trying to reduce mm -hmm. the deficiency fees. Yes. That is the amount of mm -hmm. loss of revenue. Yeah. <coughs> Net change from year zero. And yeah. Historically, it was about one point two million, and then when we went to the recession, we reduced them, and they have slowly been. Yeah, really the paradigm of parking has changed from provide free, plentiful, excessive, close to how do you manage parking in a way that maximizes the utility and the efficiency of that space while not oversupplying because we recognize that people don't come downtown to park, people come downtown to eat, drink, work, live, shop, socialize, do all of those things, and parking is a means to an end, but it's not the true purpose. Um, so parking rates, monthly permits. Here's another thing that we did. Right now, monthly transit pass is $68. If you're making a financial choice about how you are going to get downtown, parking is still the cheapest way to get around. And so what we are saying in our you know, our financial strategy before was, you know, pay half the cost of a transit pass and you can drive. What our city policies say is that we want to encourage people to think about um, how to get downtown by other means, how to get around our entire city by other means. And so over a five-year period, incrementally raising the cost of a monthly parking permit to be in line with the cost of a monthly transit pass, which, by the way, we're giving you for free if you're a downtown employee, um, so that people are making a real financial choice there. Um, and it's much more in line with our city policies, with our general plan, our climate action plan. So um, they were $39 a month, they are now $45 a month, and they will go up to top out at $75 a month. So slightly more, $7 more per month than a monthly transit pass. So the idea with this is that you're basically having people make a choice between mm -hmm. needing to go and park, mm -hmm bring their car downtown mm -hmm. versus using other alternative modes. Yeah, cost is the single most important factor in behavior. 
as it relates to transportation choices. And so if you are actually bringing parity to the choices that people are making, people are much more likely to actually have some thought about how they're going to get around. Because if you live a mile away, but you were getting a $39 a month parking pass, you didn't really have any big incentive to start walking, biking, or doing something different. Um, but if it goes up to $75 a month and you realize, I can ride my bike to work in eight minutes and I'm saving $75 a month, that's, that's a decision-making factor. And that, that goes into the, how can I get to that 192 spaces that we need to get? This is a key component. Um, hourly and meters, we have a two-step increase here. Um, step one, so our, our parking meter rates range from 50 cents an hour to a dollar an hour when we started this. Um, they now went up to 75 cents an hour at the low to $1.25 an hour in the most prime spaces. That was step one. And they will go up to $1 an hour at the, the outskirts and $1.50 an hour at the, the inner parking spaces. So again, this goes with parking management best practices where you price it a little bit cheaper further away and you price it more expensive closer in and you pay for the convenience. On-street spaces also, which the meters are, is where we want to encourage turnover. If you're going to come and you're an employee and you're going to stay all day and you're driving, we want you to park in a structure because we want those on-street convenient spaces to turn over frequently and be uh, ready and available for customers. That's kind of that's um, the 85% occupancy rule of thumb that we use there and that's the, the generalized rule in parking management. Our lots and garages likewise had a two-step increase. They went from 50 cents an hour to a dollar an hour, and they'll top out at $1.25 an hour. Again, slightly below our on-street prices to encourage bargain shoppers to go further away, and um, daily max will go up from $5 per day to $8 per day. It did, Sorry. It did. yes, on January 1st. No, uh, these went up February 1st. Yes, no, it's good. Um, so I've heard that... Um, I've heard it said that um, because maybe the outer lots are not as full, that somehow that means we don't have that we that we have mm -hmm. surplus parking. But what what yeah. you're saying is that the pricing structure may be so. For example, mm -hmm. someone may choose on a given day mm -hmm. the convenience of paying more. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not like a steady state like mm -hmm. everybody's. So I think I, I think I. Answer my own question. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, we said it okay. so it's more affordable further out, which is less convenient. So you kind of assume yeah. that kind of like the airport. probably less yeah. use out there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Right. And we haven't really seen a huge drop off when we did this increase. I mean, if you look at the double decker parking lot, right. there's been minutiae of change. Mm -hmm. There really hasn't. It's still Turns out five times around per day. noon. Um, we've seen a maybe a four or five percent drop. It's not significant. Um, mm -hmm. It just shows that our pricing was still low. Um, where we are seeing, um, even even in the um, the Locust Garage, that fills up around noon also on weekdays, and that's mainly permit. We've seen very little turnover in permits. That has that's clearly underpriced. Um, has not affected demand at all. Um, we may see some of our day some of our workers that are paying the maximum. That's a pretty significant increase. You may see some of them shifting over to bikes. Um, but there's still such a demand that it's those spaces are still being full, um, filled by others. Um, so uh, we haven't really seen a turnover or a reduction based just on price at this point. Thank you. 
Then we get to TDM, one of my favorite things to talk about when I'm not talking about parking, so all the alternatives. Um, what went into the financing matrix was $300,000 per year, which was uh, the initial direction that we'd gotten the council. This 585 um, on future slides has an asterisk on it because that was a uh, that was council direction on February 11th, 2019, to increase that from 300,000 to $585,000 per year. That's not reflected in the spreadsheet in front of you because again, this is the spreadsheet that was used at decision-making time, so I didn't make the changes to it to reflect what's happened since then. I wanted you to understand the steps that we've taken to get to where we are. Um, so this includes uh, transit passes for all downtown employees, a bike share program incentive, bike locker credits, emergency ride home, an online commute management platform, carpool matching, carpool incentives, um, prizes for if you um, log 10 rides in our commute management platform, I'll give you $5 to go get a cup of coffee in downtown dollars. So um, really trying to create as many incentives as possible and make it as easy as possible for people to choose do I live close enough? Do I have an option? Is there someone that I work with that lives near me that we could carpool? What are some other ways that we can get downtown? With the baseline of we still want all these people to come downtown. It helps make our downtown healthy and vibrant and diverse. The other thing that goes into the parking rate strategy is bonding and new supply. So we looked at the range of costs plus construction inflation that we'd estimated in the 2016 concept plan. <coughs> Uh, projected a 30-year bond at 5% interest, which uh, we checked with an outside consultant there. Assumed 600 total spaces, so again, that's one of the things that is movable. And what that resulted in was a $2.9 million annual payment of bond debt service. Um, so that was one of the, some of the things we looked at prior to this were on the revenue side, this is on the expense side, and how do you, how do you put a budget going forward. Um, operational expenses, these are also on the expense side. How do you keep going with the same levels of operation and maintenance downtown with uh, the parking facilities and all the ancillary facilities and also the added operations and maintenance um, and same staffing levels for a new structure as well and what that would take. Um, so in summary, sunset the deficiency fee over five years, increase permits to be in line with the cost of monthly transit pass, increase the uh, hourly costs of meters, lots, and structures. And um, what I would add to this also is the, the spreadsheet in front of you, the complicated spreadsheet in front of you, we did have evaluated by an outside urban economics firm, uh, EPS, and they checked our assumptions, they verified it against best practices in parking policy and against municipal construction and bonding. And um, you know what? They said, yes, your assumptions are accurate. We would support this. We third party check and verify what that is. So now really, how does parking relate to what your charge is, which is talking about the library mixed use project. So before you leave that, Claire, mm -hmm. I would just add that the construction of a parking garage is going to be about 18 months to two years when you start construction. And that means you will lose those 123 spaces have if you um, decide to go forward with the mixed use project at that location mm -hmm. and not have the additional mm -hmm. 600 spaces online until the you know the 18 months down the mm -hmm. road we have to be successful in TDM just to stay even to take mm -hmm. to deal with those 123 spaces that we will take out of the service that's not losing any other of the parking that is scheduled to go off so um, we 
going to put an extra effort on because we, we're going to need it during the construction period. Um, even just just going forward, so um, that will be robust um, and will <coughs> hopefully be successful and continue to roll that out. So. Okay, so how does this fit into what you guys are talking about and what your charge is? And really it's because it was presented as part of the package of options that was going forward and here's how you make this project happen. Um, the downtown commission on June 19th, which is one of the longest days of my life because then we had council that night, um, <laughs> they voted to move forward on the proposed rate strategy four to one. Uh, the caveat, the one vote wanted to increase to the far end of the spectrum, the $75 permits and the second step of the increases and all the way sunset the deficiency fee in one fell swoop a couple months later, and so didn't agree with the multi-step approach there, so that's the one that was against. Um, that five-year table that you That five-year table, yeah, wanted to go all the way to year five in year one. Okay. Um, which, you know, we would recommend against because downtown is kind of tenuous. As you know, businesses are really struggling to survive, and so taking a slow and steady approach and allowing things to even out in that way um, was our recommended approach. So with a four to one vote, they voted to increase the permit garage lot and meter fees to sunset deficiency fee to fund TDM and to construct a new parking supply project. Was this, oh. could you give me the year of the June 19th? Is this uh, 2018, 2018, yes, yeah. Um, coincidentally, uh, 2019 was, I believe, the first day of your first subcommittee meeting, June 19th, 2019. <laughs> I like that. Um, <laughs> June 19th of 2018 and September 11th of 2018, uh, there were two council actions. On June 19th of that same evening, we presented vastly the same information we presented to the downtown commission in the morning, and the council action was the same, to adopt the proposed rate strategy, which would increase the permit, garage, lot, and meter fees to sunset deficiency fee, to fund TDM, and to construct a new supply project, and that action was taken in a package of actions um, related to the library mixed-use project there as well. So looking at the farmer's market, looking at the library, and looking at parking as part of our overall downtown strategy for what the next steps are. Subsequently on September 11th, you took the implementing actions to um, update ordinances and resolutions related to enacting those changes in parking, which were the next step in doing that. Um, and then the downtown commission took subsequent action, which came to council on the updates to the downtown parking resolution to sunset deficiency fee and then update the in-lieu fee. So lots of policy work has gone on uh, related to that. So that's how it all ties in. Um, and I am here for any questions that you have or if you'd like to dive into more detail or any of this. Um, so ask away. Yes. Well, I guess I just want to go back to my question about the 2.9 million. Oh, yeah. Um, so Figuring so what what does that work out to um, and what what does that cost per space? I think I have it. <coughs> you can't apply that space over the the six hundred or the net two hundred and forty five spaces because it applies over the whole system. So if you right. apply it over the, the three thousand spaces, the the cost mm -hmm. um, was assessed we came up with a financing strategy that would allow us to meet this annual payment and still make our operating costs. So mm -hmm. that's built into the... But you're getting to, if 
we look at the full cost of a structure and we divide it by 600, what would the cost per space be? I want to say it was around $65,000 per space, and I can get back to you with that exact, I haven't looked at that since a while, but I, yeah. But what I'm mm -hmm. trying to get at is um, the, does, I guess I'm, mm -hmm. I, I'm not convinced, and I it's part, maybe it's just because I don't have the capacity to do those calculations and on the spot or even in general, but I'm not convinced that the permit prices that were the, the, the increased parking rates really are getting us to the true cost of parking. I'm not saying that we have to do that or I think that's an imperative. I mean, we obviously don't have to, but that I think it's an imperative, but I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around that, so yeah. help me understand. Absolutely. Um, so one of the analogies that we use a lot is if you think of airplanes. You've probably ridden on a really old airplane that doesn't have a movie screen on it and doesn't have any bells and whistles. And on the same airline, for the same price, you've probably ridden on their brand new airplane that has the touch screen and has texting passengers around you and all of that. When you have a entire system you can spread the costs in that way. So we don't need this particular project in these 600 spaces to fully pay for themselves. When you have a shared parking system and you are the owner operator of all the public parking, <coughs> incremental increases in pricing that are assessed across the 3,000 spaces that we operate in the downtown are what are modeled in the financial strategy here. So in increasing a um, off-street parking space in one of our structures, say on Locust, from 50 cents an hour to a dollar an hour, that goes into helping pay for this structure. In the same way that the structures that we've constructed to date, all the bond debt payment on those is likewise paid by the entire system. Um, what that means is that you're really able to finance it on much smaller pricing increases for people uh, because you can share those expenses over the entire system rather than project specific. And it's one of the things that makes our downtown parking district really unique. We wouldn't have the same ability to do this anywhere else in our city right now. Does that, does that help get to kind of why, I, I know it doesn't make sense to think like 50 cents an hour increase, how does that pay for you know, a $2.9 million bond debt payment? And it's because it can be spread over a much larger pool 3,000 spaces, many of those turn over two to three to five times per day. Yeah, if you, if you look at $3 million, round numbers, $3 mm -hmm. million in 3,000 spaces, it's about $1,000 a space per year, which is about $83 a month, which is about three bucks a day. Three bucks a day increase on every space <coughs> to pay for this garage. And you'll see that in that 50 cents an hour, dollar an hour, cost increase has you know, for anybody that's paying by the hour is paying for that cost. So, so it's really the hourly rates that are bumped At this point right now, it's not the permit rates, permit. but they will get there, but it is the hourly rates that are doing it right now. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's a 30-year payback? Correct. Yeah. I have a question. Oh, yeah, straight to right there. Um, so let's say, for example, well, I won't even go there. First question, I guess, um, are there any other lots where we're going to see the need for either increased parking or maintenance over time? I'm just wondering because... Um, Do we have outstanding capital needs? Is that your question? Correct. Absolutely. 
Um, and as our structures get older, we will continue to see that. We've done some pretty significant projects in the last couple of years with deck restorations to extend the useful life. Um, you know, we know we need an elevator to go in, elevator replacement there. We know we need some further deck projects going on. We're re replacing all of our parking access and revenue control systems, parks equipment, so that's the gate arms. As Mark mentioned, our vendor retired and that business went away, so we're needing to replace all of that, which was unanticipated. We'll need to replace our parking meter hoods. We'll need to do a, a full-on system assessment of what the needs are, um, which is my long way of saying, before you assume that there is a surplus, you need to understand also what our outstanding capital needs are and what our long-term system planning needs are. Because the way that we have budgeted for our system so far has been more of a pay-as-you-go, anticipate what your costs are, bond for the longer-term ones that you need for construction, but don't, um, you know, don't take it all on at once. It would be a change to, to just assume that we didn't have any outstanding capital needs that we were planning for. So yes, we have quite a few outstanding capital needs that we can project, and we know as buildings get older, they get more expensive, and, and we are looking forward to that. And are there, so, you know, assuming some of the older structures would need, will need to be probably rebuilt, or I would assume, um, you know, why wouldn't, why wouldn't we just make those taller, I guess, is one, yeah. you know, I mean, so yeah. is that, why? You know, when we first looked at expanding this parking garage, we looked at, or building a parking garage, we looked at this, the double-decker garage to say, um, why don't we just go up? Five stories to that garage. Mm -hmm. First of all, you would lose the 250 spaces that you have right there, so that's a net loss you'd have to take away. Plus, the circulation in that garage, if you think about it, it uses the street to <coughs> it doesn't. And so, if you had to enclose, if you had to enclose all the circulation inside that garage, you'd even lose more spaces because it's it's not it's not wide enough of a space to be efficient for a garage. So. So yeah. it would take you forever. You'd be going. You would be. You'd lose a lot of in a traffic jam. In traffic spaces of the garage. Mm -hmm. Probably be empty then. we look at. I mean, there's an efficiency that you have to look at for the for this the lot that you use to make it work. And so that's something that we look at. One of those. Well, this is just kind of mm -hmm. out of curiosity, but my understanding is that there's no. There's no clear use for, and this is just speculating, but for example, if we were to move the library, there's no use for this building. The one we're in right now? Yeah, that's um, my understanding. The council has not made a decision about what to do with this. So yeah. given the fact that there's two lots out back, if it, if it seemed like we needed more parking, would, it be potential, would this lot be potential space for putting in additional parking if the future projected that we would need more? I think I have a, a two-pronged answer to you there. One is that it would have to be looked at in terms of the, you know, space efficiency-wise, and as Mark said, the, the circulation of parking structures takes up quite a bit of space, and how would that work, and how could we lay it out, and would it be more efficient? The second um, part of that would be, do you think that would be an easier decision for you as council? It, so two, two things to hold in your mind as you think about it. Yeah, I think that the narrower or the shorter the lots, the more you take up in ramp costs as opposed to parking spaces. So you have to think about, someone would have to do an analysis to see if the cost effective lot to be, to convert to a garage. 
I think another piece is I'm not sure what the height requirements are here, but there's certainly less there's 35 foot limits. 35, here. yeah, than where it would be, you know, anywhere kind of deeper into the downtown. So there would be some decisions that would have to be made about height requirements if you wanted to have multi-story here, um, or if this becomes an opportunity site for other, you know, other priorities like housing or. And a if, we built, facility. if we built a new garage, we could we would still stay with the shared parking. So, for example, if there was housing included, either in, for example, a, a mixed-use project, that parking would could be accommodated within the it, that housing parking would could be accommodated into a garage yeah. as Rest. well as adjacent potentially yeah. adjacent housing. For yeah. example, if if the council decided that that kind of approach was mm -hmm. was appropriate. I love this question because one of the um, big changes we made, so as you know, before we had this as attention-grabbing project, we did a lot of work on housing. And some of the recommendations that came out of the Committee Voices on Housing and the Housing Blueprint Subcommittee were recommendations to update our downtown parking resolution. And the work, um, Commissioner Hamilton sat in a subcommittee working heavily on that, that those recommendations came to council. And really what that resulted in was a housing-focused parking policy that the changes we made allow for um, off-site parking up to 100% of the project needs to be accommodated anywhere in the district. Previously, there was a 300-foot requirement. So your project had to be within 300 feet of a parking facility that could accommodate your need. Um, we updated the parking in Luffy to have a reduced rate for affordable housing projects with the lowest rate for the deepest levels of affordability going up to a higher rate for market rate and non-residential development. Uh, we updated it so that there was no finding of sufficient supply needed for any housing projects in the downtown. So saying you can have 100% of your parking be located off-site, you can pay into the district, and we don't need to have a finding because we know we're out of balance and at a, a really stretchy spot right there, um, that we don't need to have enough actual parking supply shown in the model because we are willing to make a choice to accommodate that housing focused parking. One thing the new equipment will allow us to do also, the new parking equipment will allow us to offer residential permits so that we can have a different use um, at different times of the day. Right now our parking's um, probably underutilized during the evenings. Um, it's, it's heavily utilized midday. Um, that's probably weekdays, our employees are probably uh, taking up a significant portion of the parking. Uh, when we look at the SoCal Front Garage where they sell residential permits in that garage for 1010 Pacific, they sell 100, I think it's 100 or 125 uh, parking permits. Um, we see that garage has a, a much higher evening use just in, uh, in the evening when the residents are that side. So I think we'll see that spread throughout the other garages also we'll be able to do that um, a different type of permit and not necessarily over overuse it during the day but um, have a shared permit so if you're a resident and you work off-site and you, you decide to stay home and keep your carter carter you'll pay a, a daily rate mm -hmm. for that as opposed to an evening rate. so i just want to be cognizant of do a quick time check here so we're at 625 and you know just want to make sure that we have an opportunity that you have an opportunity to kind of Mm -hmm. Ask all your questions of all the resources we have in the room. Mm -hmm. So just a quick time check there. We don't want to go too much too far over our um, scheduled end time. Yeah, I'm going to add one thing onto what Mark said, and then um, Councilmember Cummings. In the supply and demand model, the assumptions that we had, many of the housing land uses 
were assumed to provide their own parking on site. In making it easier for housing land uses to purchase into the district via the in-lieu fee, that also creates the opportunity to create more units in downtown because that same building envelope, rather than to provide you know, one third to one half of their available buildable area to parking, it might become fiscally attainable for them to purchase into our parking district and provide more actual units on site, which is one of the key components to the policy changes that we brought to you and you subsequently approved. And we also looked at the cost of building the parking on site versus paying into the district and making sure that it was more of an incentive to pay into the district rather than building on site. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I just want to thank you for coming, Commissioner Hamilton. And um, I'm a new, I'm a new council member, so I've, I'm learning a lot about all the work that's been done really over the last four years, and so it's hard to. You know, given, having it on any given question or subject matter, it can be somewhat, but I'm starting to see, you know, the, the history of sort of the shift and what I guess I'm learning is that this is really sort of the, the next phase of what our downtown <coughs> becomes, sort of post-earthquake, post-recession, you know, moving into the future. So um, I don't know if you have anything that you would want us to know from a commissioner's perspective. I'd love to hear from you. Well, I was here to answer questions, which is why I didn't want to interrupt the presentation. Um, but just to say that the driving force behind all of the decisions that the commission made was the charge of trying to balance housing, the downtown businesses, and visitors. And it's not an easy thing to do. You, you want to accommodate everybody, but there has to be a balance in all of that. And some of the, the discussions that we had at the commission, um, the most uh, interesting, I'll just say, um, discussions were around the pricing because you mentioned earlier about, you know, is this paying for itself? And many people are concerned that you know, the parking that we do provide needs to pay for itself. It shouldn't be something that everybody is subsidizing. We, we looked into that very seriously, but we also wanted to make sure that we weren't being so onerous that people would go elsewhere and not come to downtown Santa Cruz for their businesses. So I think that, in my estimation, I think that we did a good job of, of balancing all of those needs and hopefully we will be able to come up with the parking structure somehow, some way. I think the commission itself is strongly uh, an advocate of TDM and I think that our staff has done an excellent job in moving forward. I know we didn't talk about some of the programs uh, today, but um, you should be informed about a lot of the programs that are moving the TDM program forward. Um, at a rapid pace, I, I, I might say we're ahead of schedule on a lot of these things. So it's not to say that the downtown commission is just trying to look at parking. That's not the case at all. We're trying to look at it more universally than that, and our decisions were based on that. And I welcome any questions you have. Uh, I'm still stuck on this, 
the price uh, question. Um, the, so, and I under, I mean, I, I believe you on the, on the, it makes sense on the face of it that for new projects to build units versus parking spaces, um, I understand the incentive there and I was part of the housing movement subcommittee. So um, all that makes sense to me. But um, you said you looked at pricing um, or cost for um, spaces to be built in developments versus buying into the shared parking model. And is that just about the fact that our, because we aggregate, we have those efficiencies, that it, it's cheap? Why the difference in cost? That's a good question. Um, Go ahead. I can, yeah, <laughs> jump in if you want. So we are a public entity, we're subject to prevailing wages, our cost of construction is actually about 30% higher than if a non-prevailing wage shop were to, to build a project. Even looking at that, we looked at what would it take us to build it, what would it take a private developer to build it, and what should we discount that to for an in-lieu fee in order to make it attractive so that people would think, maybe I'll purchase in rather than to build on site because it might move the needle where I can now build a larger number of units and that revenue offsets the cost of paying into the um, paying into the parking district and having that parking off site. It's a different model than traditional housing development, especially traditional market rate housing development, but it's one that is being utilized more and more in um, both people coming in and asking us from the development side and in other peer cities, and not even peer cities, other cities in general, that they're seeing um, offsite parking being used, no parking on site being used, and that um, lenders are lending on that now, which traditionally they hadn't. Um, so we did look at that. What would it cost us to build it? What would it cost a private developer to build it? And what should we discount that to in order to make it attractive? And you hit upon it a second ago, too. Uh, private developers only building a few spaces. So the cost of building those few spaces versus the city building a lot more spaces, you know, there's, there's uh, um, inequity in what those costs per space would be. Mm -hmm. I was gonna ask, have you seen that lead to, and it's kind of some of the examples maybe that you've seen it happen over time, has that led to a reduction in the cost of the units or rental within those units? Because I think one challenge mm -hmm. is, you know, trying to get more affordable housing. Mm -hmm. If we reduce the parking requirement, which is a reduction in cost to mm -hmm. the developer, and if the in-lieu fee is even, you know, substantially mm -hmm. lower than what they would have paid for those those uh, parking spots as well, mm -hmm. do we actually see that reflected in the cost of, because that reduced the cost for the development, but does that mm -hmm. actually reduce the cost um, of those units or rental of those units? Generally, yes, but it depends upon location is what the research says. If there are a lot of um, other options, then yes, it, transportation options, it tends to reduce that overall cost. Um, if there are not, and it's um, it doesn't reduce it as much, but there's a lot of variability in that too, especially with the type of development that it is, location of where it is, region of where it is, car ownership rates. Um, and then also looking at the full cost of what your, you know, people generally budget month per month uh, do you have the ability to pay for your rent? And then what do you pay if you have a car and your car storage fee? Is that your parking permit and do you pay it to the city of Santa Cruz? Or um, in other many urban areas, there are car storage places that can cost hundreds of dollars per month. So there's a lot of variability in what the research is, but generally, yes, it's a 
less cost. But and were you speaking of the costs for the developer? In other words, is he reducing his costs and therefore passing that on? Is that what you were asking? I don't think there's a way to regulate that except, you know, in, in terms of the affordable housing, of course, we have regulations. But for market rate housing, it's going to be what the market will allow. So, I mean, that's sort of the free enterprise system. But certainly, what we're finding is, and what we're encouraging is, we want affordable housing, but we don't want only low-income housing. We need moderate-income housing. We don't necessarily need high-income housing, but we need housing in general. The lower-income housing is regulated, mm -hmm. so the cost of the rents for those units, it, it, it's already set. But if you're talking about market-rate units, those rates aren't set. So mm -hmm. it's up to that developer to determine what the rents are going to be. Bonnie, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, the only thing I, I would add to that um, would be that just by having these policies, you are actually encouraging more, particularly actually in affordable housing, these projects become more feasible. So even though you know the rates are set, and that's absolutely right, the, the rents at very low, low are going to be set, the actual overall feasibility of a project because of the reduced overall cost, because it's all a combination of funding sources, makes it more feasible for a developer to build it. So I think one of the end results of these policies is that you'll see you know, more housing mm -hmm. overall built, and particularly on affordable housing too, because those are the margins are so tight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, to put that in numbers, the in lieu fee policy that you adopted, um, for market rate and <coughs> non-residential uses, the in lieu fee is now $20,000 per space. For um, the highest level of income restricted housing, it's $15,000 per space. And then it goes down for, so that's for moderate income. For low income, it's 10,000. And for very low income, it's $5,000 per required parking space. Um, depending on what uh, development tools you utilize, it could get down to 0.25 spaces per unit that are required. So, um, you know, you could get four housing units paying for one parking space at $5,000. So it really is a housing-focused parking policy that you've adopted. And not only that, but it's an affordable housing-focused parking policy that you've adopted. And I think the way the scale is set up, it does sort of try to encourage affordable housing, you know, just in and of itself because of the way the fee structure is set up. So I would say final burning questions before we wrap up. Um, I have one that's somewhat related, but a little slightly <laughs> on topic. I'll take so it. So about a week. Or two ago, um, I was made aware of a study that actually showed that Lyft and Uber have actually been increasing traffic in many towns. Correct. Because there's a lot of cars that are just circulating on the roads. Correct. And to an increase in traffic. And so I was just wondering if Santa Cruz has been tracking that, seeing as how I think some of the arguments being made is that we want to try to get more cars off the road and more people um, onto bikes and more mm -hmm. sustainable forms of transportation. But we're seeing increases in Lyft and Uber, we may actually be seeing increases in, in, in BMT. Yeah. Um, it's a great <coughs> multifaceted question that um, I can't wait to start working on. I think it's the, the project for 2020, 2021, which is curb management. So one of the ways, yes, in general, uh, increases in traffic, reductions in transit usage, and um, 
increases in vehicle miles traveled. Um, it's a fairly affordable way to get around. UCSC has seen some kind of troubling relations relationships between the increase in Uber and Lyft being available and reductions in transit usage, especially um, on weekends and in the evening as transit service declines more and more. So kind of a self-perpetuating cycle, lower ridership, so less amount of transit, so more people use Uber and Lyft, so there's lower ridership on the bus on non-circling the drain. Um, one of the tools that we have that we're gonna be looking at are curb management policies. And it's first important now in the paradigm that we're in where we have transportation network companies, TNCs, Uber and Lyft, um, that have drivers, that is there a way that you can impose geofence locations on these are the only places that you can drop off and pick up so you can manage congestion. Can you assess a fee on drop-offs and pickups? That's a tool you have. It becomes even more important as we move towards a driverless vehicle future because right now we have one passenger cars, the driver, circling around waiting for their fare to hail them. If we go towards zero occupant vehicle cars that are circling, waiting for that, that is a continued increase in vehicle miles traveled and a continued increase in congestion and a continued increase in just, you know, burning up our planet. So it's another thing. So yes, it's something that we're looking at. Yes, it's something that I'm really excited to get working on. Uh, other cities are doing some good policy. San Francisco probably has the best on curb management. Um, and so, so looking at that and how we're gonna address it. But stay tuned. It'll probably include geofencing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that seems like an exciting place to yeah. end. Unless, <laughs> Sandy, Donna, do either of you have final questions? No, I just want to yeah, thank the staff and Mr. Hamilton for coming. Wonderful. Staff. As always, we're available. Yeah. If you want to learn more about this. Yeah, and can, so um, the slide that you, those spreadsheets that we couldn't really look uh, uh -huh. into, we, we can get those. Yes, Amanda has those. Um, if you want to go into the actual spreadsheet, I'm happy to go through it with you. Um, I didn't put up the live model, it's just screenshots. So if you want to go through it, happy to. Happy to go through the um, financing matrix in more detail as well, in as much as possible. And I'll say there'll be a report out of this meeting on the library, our, our subcommittee uh, website, cityofsantacruz.com slash downtown library. And we will have another meeting September 17th um, looking at the big picture downtown, which will be in this same spot. Um, so more to come. Thank you for being here.